Deborah J. Fisher is a writer, producer, and director. She currently serves as the showrunner, writer, and executive producer of the Netflix series Ginny and Georgia. Season one of the hit series was watched by over 52 million subscribers in its first month on the platform, gathering a devoted fan base. The highly anticipated second season premiered on January 5th. Ginny and Georgia is Deborah's first time in the showrunner's seat. Through her long and varied career, she has worked her way up the ladder on numerous beloved TV shows, including Alias, The O.C., Charmed, and Criminal Minds, among others. With a wealth of experience from her own professional journey, she works to pay it forward by mentoring the next generation of creatives. Deborah Fisher, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you so much. Well, congratulations on season two of Ginny and Georgia. Oh, we're so excited to discuss the show. Thank you. So excited for everyone to watch. The character of Georgia, she brings tough love to new heights, and she's just such a surprising character. For those of us who haven't seen season one, set up the story for us where we left off at the end of season one and how you open it up into season two. Absolutely. I'll just start off by saying that Ginny and Georgia is a show about a mother-daughter relationship relationship where at the core, the mother really doesn't understand her daughter. And I think everything starts from there. So if you have seen season one, we end season one where Ginny has learned that her mother is a murderer and she and her brother drive off on her boyfriend Marcus's motorcycle. <laughs> So in season two, we pick up two weeks where we left off and Ginny and Georgia have not spoken and Ginny and Austin have been staying at Ginny's father's house, Sion, who lives in Boston. What's so refreshing about this is a mother-daughter relationship, but that it's equally weighted. It's not just one perspective. It is so true. It's about both. That's the two. We often talk about the two parts of the show. It's Ginny and Georgia and the relationship of Ginny and Georgia. So we always have these three parts of the show. Show. Yeah. And what's interesting, because the script is so cleverly woven and we don't know where it's going all the time, but we've been getting these little hints, say, in season one, where Ginny talks about being like her mother and her mother recognizing herself and seeing the same mistakes or strengths, recognizing those twin forces in her daughter. And that now I shouldn't have been surprised that it left it there at the end of season one. Yeah, their relationship, they are so much alike, but then again, so, so different. One of the beautiful things about this season with Georgia, Georgia is such a beautifully nuanced and complicated character. She's so layered and we peel back those layers of Georgia and we really get to see what she was up against and growing up as a single mom. So we really do highlight the challenges that Georgia went through in season one. We get to see more of that in season two. So of course it gives reasons for why Georgia committed murder. I mean, it was an act of self-defense, right? Preemptive in some cases. Her first murder, correct? With Anthony Green? <laughs> Sorry, there's a few. So <laughs> just clarifying, she did not intend Tend to kill Anthony Green. Her intention was to medicate him heavily so that she could go out. So as we show, he's being a little bit manipulative. She's uncomfortable and she did not intend to kill Anthony Green, but she does. Just making that distinction. Yeah, I guess because there's a number of murders and in the order in which they're given in the different flashbacks. So I'm thinking of the first reveal, but it was really an act of, she has a real survival instinct and really to yeah. protect her children. One of those murders. <laughs> 
daughters, if we're not giving too much away, she just doesn't want her daughter to go through what she had gone through, right? Right. Referring to when the wolfsbane, when she poisons Kenny, yes, she sees Kenny inappropriately touching Ginny and that sparks in the pilot where she puts the wolfsbane into his smoothie and kills him. And so, yes, Georgia is someone who will do anything to protect her children. That is something that we have definitely set up and even murder. She would do anything to protect her kids. And what's interesting is that certainly you and different authors and Sarah Lambert, the creator, you set up this mood of reflection where it makes us, I mean, hopefully none of us have gone through quite extreme situations in the same level, but it makes us reflect on, which is hard to reflect on when you're growing up, that the people who are parenting you, if it's maybe a single mother in the case of Georgia, that they were children too. And sometimes they had to grow up really quickly, but they didn't leave behind their childhood. And it's important to remember because when we're growing up, we often forget that. Yeah, it's so true. It's so lovely the way you put that. Some of the themes of our show that we like to talk about is it's hard to be human. And then a big one is everyone's fighting a battle that you can't see. And I think that showing that very nuanced, complicated childhood that we all do grow up in, it's one of the things that we really attempted to do. And with Georgia, seeing those flashes of her growing up as a single mom, and even in season one, when we see what happened to her and what led her to the motorcycle gang and everything. In season one, she was literally always running. And now in season two, she's firmly planted back in Wellsbury, planning a wedding with the mayor, Paul. But to your point, we really also get a glimpse into what is making her tick. We get a glimpse into her repressed past. And then we're getting to see Georgia and her panic attacks come in and how that is really playing a part with her and her mental health this season. Yeah. And we really come to admire, I think, the intricacies the manipulations of people too, but particularly with Georgia, how she does it, it kind of seems effortless. You don't see all the things. She's like the swan that seems graceful on the surface, but the furious paddling underneath. It's so true. Georgia is all this Southern charm and warmth on the outside, but what she does very well until the end of season one, where she's been hiding that she's murdered, she's been hiding this darker self of hers from everyone, especially Ginny. So the moment where Georgia in season two, when she walks in, we have that flashback where Georgia walks in and she sees the wolfsbane in the fireplace. And she knows that her darkest secret has been brought to the surface and that Ginny knows the truth and that she's a murderer. And that is one of the most powerful moments played by Brian Howie. Oh, it's so powerful because it just documents, it just shows us visually that Georgia will do anything, even murder to protect her kids. And it makes you question, it's like metaphors. Of course, murder is completely wrong, but a metaphor... Uh, of, is it better to stay in a bad relationship or to let things happen? Is it worse to quickly leave or quickly poison someone or allow your whole life to be poisoned? Yeah, I think that's one of the things we love to do about the show and talking about the tone in terms of, yes, murder is terrible. It's illegal. It's bad. People get arrested and go to jail for murder. But there's this gray area that I think that you're referring to and what we try to do with the tone of the show, balancing the light and the dark. And we really want to highlight and show nuance that gray area in the flashbacks and seeing her past and what she has done. We really want to highlight one of the things we talked about in season one, these systems, these establishments in place that keep people down, things like that, that what she's had to go through and overcome so with abuse, sexual abuse, things like that. So there is a gray area for people in growing up in certain ways and capacities. Yeah, and I related to seeing, I think that we've all, if we are I guess, a writer, you're growing up and you're kind of wise beyond your years. And sometimes you feel like, am I the only adult in the room surrounded by? <laughs> 
adults that seem like children. I don't know how you relate to that. Oh, you mean growing up? I think for everyone, teenagers are very complicated. <laughs> I think Ginny and Georgia, we go through so much. And I think what we really wanted to do with this show, with mental health, with self-harm, with anxiety, with depression, with eating disorders, we wanted to show a really grounded representation of a deaf family. And we just are there. It's just, they do it, like American Sign Language, they just sign to each other. We're just there. So that was always our goal is to try to be as grounded and as authentic as possible. And I think where teens and even adults are, it's through the lens. We're talking a lot more about mental health out on social media, out in the world, how important it is. We've all just lived through a global pandemic. And I think it's really important to show grounded representations of those people on screen, diversity. These are all things that people really, it makes them feel a part of. And it's something that's like so important. So we, even when it's apparently seeming like your parents are, I think we showed that in season one with Abby, like her parents going through a divorce, everything seems great on the outside. But then when you open the door and get on the inside struggling, everyone's fighting a battle that you really can't see. It's like the theme always, you open the door, you pull back the curtain and there's always something behind there always. And that's just the grounded representation that we really wanted to show with Ginny and Georgia. Yeah, I could see so many different kinds of diversity on screen, but I didn't feel, sometimes you might see a show or a film and you think, oh gosh, it's ticking a box, but it didn't feel like that. It's just behind their eyes or in their skin, would you say, whether it's self-harm. I don't feel it's from the outside. I feel like we're in Ginny's skin as she's doing that and we get to understand, maybe she doesn't understand completely why either. There are so many things, the mental health or what it's like to live in a deaf family and finding humor were there and all sorts of nuance. It was just very interesting. Oh, thanks. With Ginny, one of the things that we also really wanted to do in terms of her self-help, it was always 100%. We always representation and lived perspectives in front of and behind the camera. That's always been at the forefront and very important for us. So in terms of mental health, we have people that have that lived experience. And so we would seek out true mental health professionals. We worked with Mental Health America and we worked with a psychologist. Her name's Dr. Taji Huang, who specialized in self-harm therapy. So she would read our scripts. We would consult with her about our storylines. She would watch our cuts and have very specific thoughts. And in success of a season two, we always wanted to bring in Zion as a father because in season one, Zion's in three episodes. We hear Jenny talk about him, but we don't get a sense of how close are they? And they're very, very close. But we really wanted to show that father figure helping her get into therapy and that you have a parent like Georgia who doesn't want therapy. And that sort of threatens her and how she grew up and she doesn't believe in it, but goes to therapy with Ginny and learns a lot about herself in that and how she really, truly doesn't understand her daughter. So we really took as much care as we could with people who had lived experiences with professionals just to try to make it as authentic as possible. And I think that's really translating on screen because people really are identifying with it. Like you say, it's so important to talk about. It's okay that you're not okay. It's okay to go to therapy. It's okay to talk to your parents about it and your friends. This is all okay. We're all feeling like the same way. We all do. Yeah. And nothing is glamorized or nothing is stigmatized. And it's just very interesting in different ways people learn how to heal as in the case of Georgia. I think she would be afraid to go to therapy. Oh, <laughs> let's not want to talk about her problems. Like she might like, not be yeah. able to. No, Maybe I don't think Georgia would do very well. I think she would probably, it would take many years for Georgia to get, to peel back that onion. She onion might have to poison 
in her therapist after she speaks. <laughs> right? Ginny's just discovering that George is a murderer. Like she's never going to tell a therapist this. Like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Like you and your writers really have done a wonderful job of weaving that. Out. Since you have such a huge role in running the show, is there a particular character that you've particularly connected to and grown fondness for? Wow. I know. I will just say that show running is such a hard job. <laughs> it's a very unique position. I try to tell people, they're like, what is a showrunner? I mean, it seems obvious, right? Showrunner. It's not really that obvious. I'm like the CEO of a company. So in addition to the creative, the scripts, the writer's room, what comes out, actors being on set, I also have to have my eye on and a part of building sets, budgets, things like that. So my brain is split into half managerial and then half creative. And then I have Sarah Lambert who's the creator is a huge part of the creator. So if I'm not in the writer's room, she's in the writer's room. And then I can come in and hear what everyone's been doing for the last two hours while I've been helping to hire our department heads and get our new sets built and things like that. So then when we're in the writer's room, do I have a favorite character? That is a very hard question because they're all my family. <laughs> I love all the characters. I think that in some ways, because obviously I'm not a murderer, I do identify a lot with Georgia in writing scenes with Georgia in them. But then again, also with the kids, because I was a teenager once <laughs> as well. So I love writing the teen shows as much as I write Georgia scenes with the guys and Paul and Zion so much much fun. I'm obsessed with Joe, love writing Joe. So it's hard to say, but I will say probably there's things about Georgia because she's so complicated and so nuanced. And I think we all are in a way. It's so much fun to write her because you're putting on so many different hats and masks when you're writing Georgia, if that helps. Are there any particular times where you find yourself inserting yourself into any aspect of creating the show as a whole? Yes, absolutely. I think it organically being a storyteller, we draw upon our own lived experiences. And so that's why we have a room full of different people with different backgrounds and different lived experiences, directors with different backgrounds and point of views and different experiences. So yeah, I find myself because we talk about our own breakups and our own family dynamics. We all talk about these things and do what's best for the character. But absolutely, Pama was named after one of my best friends. Friends, Padma Atlery, who passed away when she was like 40. Right before Sarah and I pitched the show to Netflix, my dog of 14 years passed away and it was his 14th birthday on the day we sold the show. His name was Brody. There's a character named Brody. There's a really interesting scene between Georgia and Marcus this season. It's very similar to a scene I had with a family member growing up. So yeah, a lot of things in our own lives get into the show and there's tons of moments it's like, oh, that kind of happened in my life. It looks a little different and sounds a little different, but we're storytellers, right? But with being the showrunner, I can help name people and things that we get to talk about do end up in the show. But that is the truth with all the writers and with actors. We do try to insert things. You'll see all of our cast singing and playing instruments because they really do. We watch them on Instagram. We're like, oh, they can play the piano. Oh, Felix can do this. Becky Black can do that. Next thing you know, we're writing about it and we have a spring play. So we're always like, be careful what you put out there because we're 
we're going to take it and we're going to make a big scene or a big storyline about it. So 100% yes. And of course, season one ended on that with a performance and a big betrayal and big reveal. I can imagine with the themes of the show that it makes it all that more real and the intimacy of that kind of fam that you've created filming in Canada. Speaking of the visual notes and the production design, because I know you're heavily involved in that and the music and how you were making those decisions in the beginning and going into season two. Yeah, we really, being a showrunner, you are involved in every decision-making, the hiring of everyone, production designers and costume designers. And we are on a budget and we only have so much money. So we have to be very thoughtful in thinking about where are we going to be a lot? And that was going to be Zion's Loft this year. We were going to be there a lot. So that was a very useful place to have a set. And what scenes were we going to be in a place? Because we can only, the way we shoot, we film in blocks. So we do 10 episodes and we do, we block shoot. So when we're shooting two episodes at once, we're shooting out of order and we can only be in our exteriors. I think it was like two or three days. I'm trying to remember exactly because my line producer was a literal genius, like Claire Welland, the things that they would do in our ADs and James Krause, our production designer, literal geniuses. But yeah, you have a hand in creating the world, what it looks like, what people are wearing, what their hair and makeup looks like. Everything that's on the scene, when you watch an episode, when you see the scene, everything that's there to the placement of a seltzer water, everything is there typically for a reason. And there's someone who has the job and is hired there and is there for a reason. And we have a hand in helping everyone decide all of that. And what are some of those Easter eggs or those cues to character that might be hidden in things, whether it's the design or the fashion? Because sometimes I'm not great at picking up and I say, oh, that's why it was there in episode two. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Easter eggs. Things in Felix's room, there's a guitar. He plays guitar. I don't know if you guys can see those, but there's a lot of things with art in his room, little homages to him. There'll be, for example, in Abby's room, there'll be pictures of them because they all hang out and there'll be cute little pictures that you might not really see. So there'll be all these cute little personalized moments in their rooms. And Maxine, there's a lot of those too. Cute little pictures that you might see on a little shelf or something like, oh, that's adorable. But yeah, there's a lot of fun little moments like that. And the set dressing. Because of the flashback nature, I don't even like to use the word flashback because tonally it blends. It's not this big thing where it's, oh, the palette is so completely different. So I like that too, because it makes us realize how the present is layered over the past. But it makes me reflect a lot. I wonder what Ginny will be like as an adult. I mean, I know it's going quite along in your plan of seasons, but I find myself thinking about that. Yeah. So Ginny, you see her style evolution from the pilot where she wears oversized concert t-shirts and Doc Martens and big baggy jeans. And then her evolution toward the end of season one, where she's looking a little more Wellsbury and sometimes she's straightening her hair or she's wearing sweaters and jackets. She fits in a little bit more with Mang or like what would be more acceptable in Wellsbury. And then in season two, we see her going through a little different phase. We see her a little rebellious phase where she's dyeing her hair with Abby and she's attempting to look a little more punk rock and things like that. Yeah, I think as teens, we dye our hair, we do crazy things, we put on different outfits, we try what we're feeling. And yeah, I think her style will always continue to evolve because I look back on myself. I'm not sure if you did this in high school and boy, the makeup and hair choices, they were really bad. I wish someone would have pulled me aside and said, you know, green eyeliner was just not the way to go, Deb. And like curled bangs, really, really hard curled. Yeah, we make some fashion choices 
pieces sometimes. I look at Maxine's wardrobe and I don't think Maxine will ever look back on herself as a character and make any regrets because it's just always a great fashion statement. And Georgia too. Georgia's wardrobe is fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. Yes. <laughs> like that show, in fact, and many other classic characters in that vein. No, I was thinking more about Ginny, what she'll be beyond the fashion. I don't know how you can reveal about that as her character, what you imagined for her adulthood. Oh, do you mean her character arc? I think that Ginny is going to be someone that is in the creative world. We've already seen her writing. I think I see her as an artist. I see her being someone who's very vocal, very outspoken and whatever she would attempt to do. I just see her always fighting for people's rights and representation. Just who she's becoming as a 16-year-old, I just see her building upon that even more, becoming more comfortable in herself and just being even more outspoken than she is and comfortable with each year. It's interesting to think about her in college. I'm like, Ginny goes to college. Wow, who is she? (laughs) I love that question. I think in the arts, I could also, as we were talking about therapy, I could also see her as someone who does want to help people and not flick pain on herself, but take what she's learned about that to help others. I could not agree more because I was a product of divorce growing up. And when I was in college, I was a major in radio, TV, and film, and I was a minor in psychology. So I absolutely, because being a teen, I was in therapy with my parents when I was very young. It was something that was very acceptable in my household. And my parents were super hippy dippy. So it deeply affected me as well, psychology and wanting to help. And I think that definitely would bleed over because it's something that's really important to me, not just psychology, but what I'm writing about, the things that we talk about in Ginny and Georgia, like mental health and things like that. It is very important to me. So in some way through art, being able to discuss these issues as well. I think Ginny, I could see her doing that as well. The two sides of her brain, the artistic part and the part of her that wants to help kids through what she's been through too, because there's such a beauty in that. I want to ask you about teachers who have been important to you and your studying psychology. Something that we reflect a lot about now, and it's in the show as well, is how are social media and the different technologies affecting mental health and the dopamine triggers and all that? Yes, it is so true. I'm so happy that I did not grow up with a phone. I talk about this all the time. I did not have a cell phone growing up. We did not have the internet. I feel for children going through that. I think it's a really challenging time. Technology, I struggle with it now. People having so much access to us, people expecting because I have a phone right next to me that I'm going to respond to them. When you're running a TV show, there's a little bit of an unwritten expectation of your availability during off hours and the weekends. And you really just in a workplace need to protect your work-life boundaries. We try to be very cognizant of that within the writer's room and not working too late. We worked like 10 to five in season two, like maybe 5.30 with an hour and a half lunch break during the Zoom room and COVID because it's just so important to not be staring at these screens all day. And even with the kids, like if someone needed some time off for a doctor's appointment, we try to really honor that and give that to them. And I think in terms of teachers, there was a few teachers that really did influence me in college, but because I grew up in Maryland, it wasn't until I moved out to LA 
And it took me a little bit of time to find my way to writing. And I'll say I had several really significant showrunners that did some really important things for me. And when I got onto Ed Bernero on Criminal Minds, I had a little stint in the world of cop shows, but he really taught us how to produce. I'd only been a writer before that. And he literally threw us into the deep end of the pool and was like, go produce your episode. I was on set for every single scene. I was in prep with the directors. I really learned from doing, and it truly was from there I earned that writer-producer title. I also have only worked for two other female showrunners, Maggie Friedman and Erica Shelton Kodish. Working for them changed my life. Those two women, I got to see how women can run shows, how differently that is from a man running a TV show. And I took a lot when I got to this position. I really had pros and cons lists of things I really wanted to do based on the people that I had worked with. So many of the things, how I run the writer's room and how I am upset and how close I am to the actors and form a relationship with them and making sure everyone feels good and comfortable because we work so long and we work so hard and we have to have space for all of that. Something that I really enjoyed about Deborah Fisher's interview is that she helps up-and-coming writers by allowing them to find their voice and by allowing them to actually live their lives. Because as important as it is to actually sit down and jot your ideas on paper or on your computer, I think it's also really important to get the necessary experiences of your life in order to write a compelling story because you have to experience life in order to write about it. And I think writers, including myself, often forget about that fact and the idea of getting more hands-on experience in order to write that compelling story. I also found it really interesting that Deborah and Mia talked about how the job market is incredibly difficult to get into nowadays, regardless of what field you want to get into. And so you should really pursue the kind of job that you want to experience and live through and enjoy for the rest of your life or for at least a good part of your life, because it is incredibly discouraging sometimes to hear, especially for aspiring writers like me, that getting a job in the arts is incredibly difficult, but remembering that there are other difficulties in getting other kinds of jobs, even business or computer jobs, is really reassuring for creative people like me who want to pursue that kind of work and who find it difficult to find a position in an oversaturated market. I often point to film and television, particularly, but also the theater and any of these collaborative arts is that dedication. When I start to get, not hopeless, but when we see that we're not making progress on climate change or politics, or we keep on getting set back, it's like, look at what can be done when there's a collective vision. And it shows the best of what's possible. It is true. You can't make a TV show by yourself. We are here because of the work of 150 to 200 people over the course of four years. And it's so much hard work. It's so much love. Of the writers, the actors, the directors, the crew, everyone on set helping bring this to life. It takes so many people to make a TV show and to make it good. But you do have to have someone steering the ship and just try to get everyone on that collective vision together. And so I think we've done a good job. With Sarah being the creator, everyone likes to say she's like the ship and I'm steering it. We've got a really great balance and checks and balances too, because this is designed to have checks and balances, to agree, to disagree, to make this 
best choice for the show. So we have such a wonderful group and relationship of like, I don't know. I don't think about it. Let's look at this. Let's not do it this way. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. Let's do it this way. Whatever's best for the show, it's always, 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 always best idea wins. Yeah. And you mentioned those female showrunners, which we're so happy to see. There's more and more and so many female creatives on Ginny and Georgia. If you could contrast those different show running or writing style, how a woman holds and maintains power seems like there's a great parallel to that with the story in Georgia's own life or in Ginny's own life. It's so true. I like to say that Ginny and Georgia is a show about women, by women, for everyone. And I will say women in charge, they do things differently. I think that women, we tend to do relationships differently than men do. It's very, very important to me. And I'm not saying that men don't do this, but as a woman, as a female showrunner, it's very important for me to uplift young up and coming writers. In the first season, one of our staff writers, he had been a writer's assistant before. So Ginny and Georgia was Mike Goyo's first staff job. Same thing, Kel Funderman on season two, she had been a writer's assistant, showrunner's assistant, and then promoted her to staff writer. It's really important for me to nourish these young up and coming people in a different way. It seems more mentory, but I really try to be there for my team, my cast, my crew. Everyone has my phone number. Everyone has my email. If they need me, they can reach out to me and I will make time for them face-to-face phone if someone needs something. And I think that translates to the screen. And also with the actors, I really set out ways for them. None of them knew each other, right? Some of them did up in Toronto, but we really did a lot of things. And I learned this from some of my best showrunners. We would go out and do things together all as a group, like karaoke, because they were all of different ages and getting to know each other. And now they're all the best of friends. They spend time together outside of work. And that really shows on screen. They really do have a love, affection, and respect for one another. And I think for me at the top, I'm a very accessible showrunner to my cast, to my crew, to the writers, to everyone. I'm involved in everything. And I think that way has really done well. I have to really work strongly to protect my boundaries and to protect my work-life balance. I'm always working on that. I'm not great at that. I need to get better about that, but I think it makes for better TV, a better show and a better work-life environment for everyone else. I will say that. And it really shows all the tiny shorthand that the close-knit family support that you've given to them. And just recognizing that when real life comes in, we all have lives outside of work and we have to recognize that. And if people need time off to grieve or to go do this, we have to respect that and need that. And at the end of the day, we're here to entertain and we're here to make beautiful art, but it's always about entertainment and we're going to be together. And because we're together, we're probably with each other more than we are with families and friends who we want to be with. So let's make it the best place. Hopefully, look, it's really hard. And some days people are not happy with each other, but we're going to try to get through it and make the best show possible. You were talking about how you love being able to flourish up-and-coming writers. What do you think is different about up-and-coming writers compared to writers that have been experienced in the field? What do you think new writers have to offer in regards to their storytelling and their ideas and their perspectives? What I look for when I'm meeting with new young writers, look, school, people's routes, they go different ways, right? Sometimes people go to college and they're writers or they haven't gone to college. I want people to be writing about things I've 
never written about. I want them to come in and tell me a story. I'm like, what'd you do this summer? And I don't want to hear, I sat in my apartment for three months and wrote, I want to hear you got this new hobby and you were out doing this crazy thing. You were rock climbing and jumping out of planes or whatever it is, or reading books in the mountains. The only way to be a great writer is to live a great life, live life. You have to get out there, travel, do something, go to movies by yourself, go to dinner by yourself, go sit in a restaurant by yourself. Have you ever done that? I do it all the time. I'm a people watcher. Do things that's going to make you a better writer. I'm really interested in hearing those kinds of stories. Look, I'm deeply impressed by people who've gone to Harvard and Yale and been plays and actors. I'm deeply impressed by that, but I'm really into people with a unique voice and we all have something. I'm different. I grew up different from you. You grew up different from me. I want to hear about you, Jamie. What do you do? What are your hobbies? What do you do in your spare time? What are your favorite movies of all time? What cartoons were you watching growing up? Tell me a story. Those are the things that I want to know. So those are the things I hope that are different from people that have been doing it for 20 years and they think they know this is how we do it and this is how it's done. Because I will say the new up and coming writers, they're less thinking about keeping it inside the box and how it's always done. It's like, well, can we try this? And I love, I'm like, well, we have always done it this way, but that's a great idea. Let's ask. Let's see if we can do it this other way. Because we're not thinking that way. It's always new ideas and new ways of doing things. That's what I love about upcoming writers. In regards to sitting down and writing some of the shows yourself, do you have an artistic goal or a moral goal? Or do you also just like writing for the sake of entertaining an audience? I think two things. Writing for a show when you're on a TV series, you have to take in consideration entertaining an audience. But if I'm going to write a new script, which I am right now, something that's come up. For me, it's where I am right now in my career, which I have been writing and producing for most to 25 years. <laughs> and so right now where I am, I'm not thinking about what everyone else wants to see or what everyone else wants to read. I'm only thinking about what I want to put out into the world. So for me, I'll have germs of something that happened to me that I would deeply fictionalize. It's interesting when I first read the Ginny and Georgia pilot that Sarah Lampert wrote, she had read a script of mine called Roll the Bones, which is kind of like a weird second cousin of Ginny and Georgia because it's about a woman who leaves her degenerate gambling husband shoots him in the leg on the way out and she and her two kids flee and are running from him. And then she goes and creates this gambling ring with the bookie that her husband was working with. And it was just this weird, like, and I will say some of those people existed in my life in various ways. So I will take people in my life and then deeply fictionalize them. So for me, where I am now, it's just all about specifically what I want to say. And it's typically, not always, typically about women, typically female forward. That's just sort of where I have been the past four or five, 10 years and writing what I want to on my own. It's usually female centric and telling a female centric story in a different perspective in a different way. And something that hopefully we haven't really seen before, something unique. And are there any particular themes in your shows that you like exploring or do you explore what theme seems most prevalent in your life at that moment? I think it can be both. I will say the tone of Ginny and Georgia, I need a tone like that. I need a balance of light and dark. It can't be just one thing. I want you to be laughing one minute and by the end, I want you to be crying. For me, character study is what is the most important. It all comes down to the characters. It's less about action or things like that, which you can have some of that, but it tonally has to be female-centric and you have to be crying and laughing. And also there's so many interesting shows that walk that line of light and dark. I want to always live in the gray area with characters, always. Nothing is ever black or white. 
it's always a weird gray area. Shows like dead to me, things like that. Interesting female driven. <laughs> They're constantly living in the gray area on that show. Friday Night Lights, Breaking Bad, My So-Called Life. That was the whole reason I'm here, truly. Dawson's Creek. It's just, you got to always live in the gray, always in the gray area. Yeah, I love that expression, living in the gray. And we should say, you mentioned action. And so you actually write action very well. I know, I wrote on Alias. I do like to watch action movies. I do like to write action scenes sometimes, but right now, not a whole action adventure movie. It's just not where my heart is right now. It's not to say that I couldn't in the future, but right now it's mostly focusing and telling female-centric stories. I think that your enjoyment shines through and it comes off the screen. And I think the action may be very fun for the different creative members of the team, maybe behind the camera. That's so true. <laughs> Department heads get so excited when you're bringing in cranes and stunt doubles and we're doing stunts. It can be very fun. It really can. Action and fight scenes, but just not as a whole. I think that you bring it, there's so much action, just put two people in the room. I mean, that's for me, that's the excitement, the mystery of what goes on behind somebody else's eyes. So true. I mean, so many scenes with Ginny and Georgia, it's like putting them together and rolling the camera half the time and just seeing what those two actors are doing. I'm truly in awe of them, truly watching them. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned that bringing together this laughter and tears and how did you learn that because the whole timing of a joke and how it's a complex melody I just don't know how that all works within the serious drama I think that watching shows that do balance that watching movies watching TV shows and then in reading the pilot that Sarah Lampert had wrote it had so much of that I think that's why it was looking for that I had just come off of a network series and I told my team I don't want to do this is what I want to do I literally said I want to focus on emo forward shows I want to do something character driven. And then two months later, I read Ginny and Georgia and I was like, this is exactly what I'm talking about. And so it had all of that in the pilot. It was beautifully written. It had moments where I was laughing and horrified. And I was like, yes, this is exactly what I'm talking about. And when Sarah and I met, we had very similar tastes. And we're mostly always usually not 100%, but we're very usually creatively aligned. And if it does change, it's usually because one of us has just a little bit of a better idea or a different spin on it that becomes better. But I would say our foundation and all the writers that we hire and all the directors and everybody kind of has that same foundation and similarity in thinking. And so they get the tone of the show because maybe they're written on things or they hope to. That's how they want the scenes to go as well. And so as you think about the future and the teachers or collaborators who have been important to you and the importance of the arts, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I would tell them because I'm currently mentoring three younger up-and-coming writers right now. And what I tell them is very close to what I was just telling Jamie because their reps are saying, what's being sold right now? What is hot now? And what I tell them, the first rule is I say, what would you write if no one else was going to see this? What is the thing that you would write? Don't think about what people are going to buy. Don't think about what people are going to watch. What is the thing that you need to say? And so one of them has come up with something so amazing. It's actually out there in the world right now being read by possible other producers. So I think it's very important because out in the world, and we have so much access, which is great. But when you're on places like Twitter and TikTok, and you're seeing trends and what people are buying and people try to fit themselves into boxes, I would say you have your own unique voice. You have something to say, and I want to read what you want me to read, not what your family or your agent or anyone thinks is 
is going to sell. That's first and foremost. And also, if you want to be a writer, you need to be writing. There's so much like, how do you sit down? You sit your butt in the chair and you tap the keys. That's the only way it's going to get it done. If you want to be a writer, you have to write. And then I tell kids too, this iPhone, you can make movies on. They go do it. You want to do it? Go film a five minute, 10 minute thing. You can do it. Early this summer, I get lots of DMs about people wanting to talk. And so I happened to see a comment on an old post and it was like, I want to talk to you. And I told my assistant, I said, please reach out to this person. It turns out her name is Ashley. I went and spoke to their whole class via Zoom. They were in Florida. They were graduating from high school that week. And we had this great talk and I was telling them all the things that I'm telling you. And they asked a lot of questions because some of their families want them to go be lawyers and accountants. And I said, look, tell your parents to give you a year. This is your passion, the arts. Make sure you're writing the thing or go film the stuff. You got to do it. You have to tell them, just give you a amount of time, give you a year. And so the young woman that found me and tracked me down and organized this whole thing, she was scared, but she applied to NYU and she got in, she got into Tisch School of the Arts. And she was like, it was all because of you. So I was like, do it, go do the thing. So it's like, I love inspiring and uplifting young voices. So I tell them, write like no one's going to read it. And that's when something beautiful will come of it. That's such an important message. And for any career, there's no safety net. And particularly now, the roads we thought were safe aren't safe. And film and television is booming. So yes, we need the time. (laughs) So this is as safe as anything. So thank you, Deborah Fisher, for sharing your unique voice so that others can find theirs. And for living in the gray to share these complex stories about women that are for everyone that help us question the meaning of love and how we overcome our traumas, heal and nurture our strength. Thank you for making strangeness visible in these entertaining stories. And thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. And thank you for all you do for your mentorship programs. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me and thank you for watching. It's so, so appreciative. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Jamie Lammers with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Digital media coordinator and associate interviews producer on this episode was Jamie Lammers. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Thank you.